I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 22nd, 2012. Coming up, we'll hear the latest forecast for weather out in space. Lots of spots today, activity looms. And we'll find out why a passionate group of scientists and a book author believe there's something better than uranium for huge amounts of power. It's called thorium. It's the future of nuclear power, and it's going to solve the energy crisis. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Contrary to what you might expect, in some cases, having a larger number of parasites in an ecosystem can actually decrease the rate of disease due to parasites. That's according to a new study by Peter Johnson and Jason Hoverman from the University of Colorado's Ecology and Environmental and Evolutionary Biology Department. The scientists looked at amphibians, specifically more than 2,000 Pacific chorus frogs in 134 ponds as well as in labs. And they charted the health of frogs in the presence of different combinations of the six most common amphibian parasites. The research showed that when the chorus frogs were exposed to multiple types of parasites simultaneously, the infection success rate was 42% lower than for frogs exposed to only a single species of parasite. According to Dr. Johnson, the results show increases in parasite diversity consistently cause a decrease in infection success by the most virulent parasite. These results are useful to understand how changes in biodiversity affect the risk of infectious diseases in humans and wildlife. Charting the relationships between parasites and amphibians is important since few studies have examined the influence of parasite diversity on disease, and because amphibians are declining faster than any group of animals on the planet due to habitat loss, pollution, and emerging diseases. The study was published in this week's issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. When people snore like thunder, go quiet then do that awful thing where they explosively launch into snoring again, it could be a sign that the windpipe has collapsed and that the noisy sleeper is struggling for air. This condition, called sleep apnea, not only leads to poor night's sleep for the snorer and who's ever sharing their bed. Sleep apnea can be a sign of low oxygen levels and a greater risk of a heart attack. Many experts blame sleep apnea on excess weight. Now, researchers from St. Vincent University Hospital in Dublin say the real culprit is often diabetes. And the clue is that often the blood sugar levels of a sleep apneic snorer are high. And the more a sleep apneic's throat collapses and shuts off breath, the higher the blood sugars tend to be. The research will be presented at the American Thoracic Society. That's thoracic as in throat, meeting this week in San Francisco. As for how to check blood sugar in a noisy snorer, the researchers used the average level of blood sugar over three months. That test, the hemoglobin A1C, is inexpensive, available at drugstores or online. Excuse me while I take my third cup of coffee. So if you're feeling too guilty to pour a second cup of coffee, relax. In fact, the more the better, according to a major new government study that linked coffee drinking to living longer. Researchers found that frequent coffee drinkers have a lower risk of dying from a range of diseases compared with people who drink little or no coffee. But don't get too excited. The study can't 
prove that drinking more coffee makes people live longer, just that the two appear related. But still, the study, which began in 1995, is the largest ever conducted on the relationship between coffee consumption and health. It analyzed the coffee-drinking habits of more than 400,000 men and women, ages 70 to 70, 50 to 71. And in case you're feeling more confused than ever... Caffeine contained in coffee is indeed a stimulant that may temporarily increase heart rate and blood pressure in some people. But coffee also contains hundreds of unique compounds and antioxidants that may deliver health benefits. Caffeine didn't play a role in the study's results. The report was published online last week in the New England Journal of Medicine. You're listening, hopefully not snoring. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. It sits at the bottom of the periodic table of elements, along with fellow radioactive substances, including uranium and plutonium. It's called thorium. It's far less known than uranium, but it's powerful enough to have been named for the Norse god of thunder. Decades ago, uranium won out over thorium as the nuclear fuel of choice to power the world's reactors. But a growing number of scientists and engineers argue that thorium is safer, cleaner, and more efficient as a fuel source than uranium. Richard Martin is the author of a new book called Superfuel, Thorium, the Green Energy Source for the Future. He's a journalist and editorial director at Pike Research in Boulder, and he's with us in the studio to talk about thorium and why it should be a part of our energy mix in the future. So, Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. So, it's on my placemat in the periodic table. <laughs> I think many of us probably don't really know what it is. Can you give a little snapshot of, of what it is and, and why it's so important? Well... As you say, thorium is a radioactive element, uh, very similar to uranium. There's one crucial difference. Um, thorium is fertile, it's not fissile, which means that you can't start a chain reaction just by cramming a bunch of thorium into a small space. You have to have an external source of neutrons. That makes it much safer to transport. You can't build bombs with it. But once you transmute it in that way, it becomes a much more efficient source of power. And what makes it, in your mind, safer as a fuel source? Is it that it can't be made into a bomb or other things? That's right. It also has to do with thorium's half-life. So the half-life is the amount of time it takes for half of a radioactive substance to decay. Thorium's half-life is about 14.2 billion years. That's billion. about billion with a B. That's about the age of the universe. Uranium has a half-life of about 4 billion years. Half-life is inversely related to radioactivity. So the longer the half-life, the less potent it is as a source of radiation. Um, that's a good thing if you're just, you know, you could sleep with thorium under your pillow if you wanted to, if you had some desire to do that. I feel cozy already. That'll yeah. cure my apnea. Exactly. Um, but it also has to do with what's left over after you burn thorium in a, in a reactor. You can use thorium in conventional reactors as solid fuel rods, and there are companies there's one company in particular in the United States that's trying to do that. The real proponents of thorium believe that's like putting biofuel in a Hummer to really gain the advantages of Arnold thorium. Arnold Schwarzenegger did it. Yeah, exactly. And who would argue with a governor? But to really take advantage of thorium's unique properties, there's a not a new type of technology, but an alternative 
reactor technology, which is known as liquid fuel reactors. Literally, the core of the reactor, where the rea- fission reactions take place, is liquid. That means a meltdown's impossible, and it has uh, a bunch of other advantages. A as meltdown's well. really impossible. Yes, because if you think back to your high school physics, which I slept through, but <laughs> I've learned recently. When you heat a liquid, it expands. When you expand the liquid in which these fission reactions are going on, you're you're putting more space between the atoms, so the reactions slow down. It's self-governing. There's a second property as well, which is a liquid reactor drains. So there's literally it's like a it's built like a bathtub. There's a plug in the bottom. It's mm. called a freeze plug. If anything goes wrong, that plug melts. The core of the reactor drains into a shielded underground chamber. If we'd had one of these at Fukushima Daiichi. Nothing would have happened. But when you're talking half-life of 4 billion or 14 billion years, is that kind of a moot? Qu- I mean, it's not moot question, but it's still pretty darn long. It is, but let's talk about waste for a moment. So any nuclear reactor is going to create waste. Thorium reactors create about 8 to 10% by volume of the waste that a conventional reactor creates. So first of all, there's less of it. So Second, just, is that because it's more efficient? There's less in the fuel cycle that's to begin right. with? They call it the burn-up factor. So conventional reactors use about 3 to 5% of the available energy in the uranium that's used as the fuel. With thorium, there are people who claim, and this has not been proven out yet, but that you can get up to 50% of the available energy. So there's just less radioactive material left over. The other thing is, once it's turned into waste, those half-life ratios are actually flipped. So the radioactivity of the thorium waste actually goes down much quicker. Hmm. We're talking hundreds of years rather than tens of thousands of years than conventional waste. And this is not something scientists and you following them, engineers, have been writing on the back of a napkin. It actually has quite a history in the U.S., right? Could you talk a little bit about that and then what happened to it? I sort of envision a who killed the electric car type scenario, but maybe not. Exactly. So back in the late 50s and 1960s at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee, we actually built and ran what were then known as molten salt reactors, but it's the same thing as a liquid fuel reactor. And at the end of that experiment, they were actually run on thorium. And so this is not a whiteboard technology. These reactors have been proven. Thorium's advantages have been proven. On an experimental scale, right? Correct. Yes. That program was killed in 1973 under the Nixon administration. And that's kind of where the, if there was a conspiracy, that's when it happened because the advantages of thorium were clear. But at that time, the nuclear power industry wanted to go in a different direction. And so thorium was shut down. And again, it was more about sort of war and military purposes. Yeah. So, you know, when people ask, why thorium, if thorium's so great, why aren't we using it? There's sort of a short answer and a long answer, and I'll make both of them brief. The short answer is you can't make bombs with it. The long answer is that we knew back in the late 40s how to use uranium. We used it in the Manhattan Project. It was the fuel used in the Naval uh, Nuclear Submarine Program, which was really the, the birthplace of the nuclear power industry. So it's really a case of technological lock-in. 
which is where a technology that's not necessarily superior takes over because of market forces, because of political forces, because of, you know, personalities in some cases. So that's really what happened with uranium. But now there's a big opportunity to bring thorium back and really make it, as you said at the start, a big part of our future energy mix. So if there's an opportunity, at least from a sort of carbon neutrality or near neutrality standpoint, what about um, economically, politically? Is there... or is there much investment behind so, it right now? Let's let's there is growing investment behind it. Let's talk economics just for a moment. Um, I did some calculations in the last chapter of Superfuel, the book, in which what I came up with was that for about what we spend on the Pentagon every year, which is something like six hundred eighty billion dollars a year, we could build a fleet of thorium reactors between now and twenty fifty that would provide about half of the electricity demands of the United States every Couldn't year. Couldn't we also have enough solar and wind to do the same without any of these problems? So that's a whole other question, Susan, and I really go in, into that in some detail. Basically, I'm all for renewables as well. They're just not going to happen quickly enough and at the scale that we need in the next 30 to 50 years. Well, thank you so much. So much more to talk. Hopefully we'll have uh, Richard back on the show. That was Richard Martin, author of the new book, Superfuel, Thorium, the Green Energy Source for the Future. For more info, you can go to superfuelbook.com. And also this Thursday at Barnes & Noble, right near Whole Foods in Boulder on May 24th, he'll be signing the book at 7 p.m. Thank you. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. It has been said that you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. However, you do need a weather satellite and space researchers to know which way the solar wind blows, and if that solar wind will affect anything orbiting or on the Earth. So today, we have a space weatherman in the studio to explain the Sun-Earth connection and why we should care about space weather forecasts. Joe Kunchis is a space scientist at NOAA's National Weather Service Space Weather Prediction Center in Boulder, and he's a past secretary of the International Space Environment Service, which works with near real-time monitoring and prediction of the space environment to assist users to reduce the impact of space weather on activities of human interest. He says he's in his fifth solar cycle in the space weather field, so... Happy birthday and welcome to the show, Joel. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. Um, so, uh, let's start off with what is space weather? I assume it's you know it's not raining in outer space. So, what is it exactly? No, that's a good question because it's a little bit esoteric for most people. But but it really starts at the sun, and and when the sun is eruptive and it releases a large amount of energy, um, a number of things can happen near the Earth. Uh, among those, the Earth's magnetic field gets disturbed. Uh, the radiation environment through which satellites fly, for example, and back in the old days when the Apollo program was going on and astronauts were going to the moon, there was big concern about the radiation environment in which they were working. So it's really a consequence of the, the variable sun, our, our sun, and, uh, and it, it causes us at NOAA to monitor it closely and make predictions and, and forecasts and warnings when, when uh, conditions are right. So when you say radiation and space weather, what <clears throat> are we 
what are we talking about? What is it that's coming off the sun that's causing this? Well, solar flares, for, for many, many years, people have known about solar flares, and they're the consequence of the magnetic fields at the sun becoming very uh, enhanced and disturbed, and they want to release the energy. And, and in doing so, they release light and radio waves, actually, as well. And um, so that... Uh, that emission becomes very enhanced when the sun erupts. And another thing we learned about probably more in the last 40 or 50 years is a phenomenon called a coronal mass ejection, which basically it's like blowing the roof off, if you want to think of it that way, that the outer solar atmosphere actually gets blown off uh, in, con you know, in concert with the uh, overall eruption, and charged particles and magnetic field get thrown off into space. So it's uh, kind of a mixed bag, just depending on what's going on in terms of the genesis of it. So these are <clears throat> those of us who have seen like some movie of the sun with huge loops coming out and eruptions like that. These are the type of uh, events you're talking about? Right. And, and again, it all starts with the magnetic field. I mean, that's that's what makes the sun so interesting for us is that it has this this very changeable magnetic field structure that we've known about for a long, long time. This is the so-called solar cycle where the sun actually becomes very active, very eruptive because these magnetic fields are so strong. And then the fields kind of go away and, and the sun becomes more comatose and it goes through a, a solar minimum period, as we call it. And uh, and right now in, in the new solar cycle, we're in solar cycle number 24, we're at the ascendancy of it. We're at the beginning. We've been uh, seeing more eruptive activity in the last couple of years, and chances are for the next three or four years we're going to have episodes, maybe one every six weeks or a couple of months, where, again, you'll have a strong sunspot group that will have lots of energy in it. It will be frisky. <laughs> It'll erupt. It will, you frisky know, sun. It will throw, you know, throw charged particles and magnetic field and photons our way and we'll deal with them. And charged particles, you're talking <clears throat> like protons? Protons, electrons, yeah, different ions and such. And so uh, these come streaming out from the sun. Um, I assume if the uh, event, the eruption or what, Ever is facing the Earth, that's when we need to worry. That's right. Then that's for the coronal mass ejections. The coronal mass ejections, you can think of playing baseball, if, if you want to put it in a, in a metaphor. You know, we're the batter and, and the sun is the pitcher, and, and it's throwing these things our way. And, and so what we try to do is, is uh, predict where the, where the ejection is going, when it's going to get here. So there is a directional component to those. For solar flares, if it's anywhere on our side of the sun, we will see the photons from those. So, it, again, depending on the kind of thing you're, you're looking at, you have different aspects that you need to concern yourself with. And all of this is monitored by spacecraft yes. and or on the ground? Yeah, both. Both. Over the years, we've gone from a pretty much a ground-based uh, network to monitor space weather to more and more a satellite-based network for obvious reasons. And, and sitting here today, we have, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to tell you we have more abilities than we've ever had before in terms of the monitoring of the sun, the, uh, the modeling that's going on, the physical understanding of the processes that we think cause space weather. And, and on the other side of the coin, uh, interactions with customers and users like the electric power grid and satellite operators and even commercial airlines as they fly 
fly from North America to Asia, they fly over the North Pole. Well, as it happens, the Earth's magnetic field sets up in such a way that it allows easy access to the charged particles, for example, uh, near the North Pole and the South Pole, too, for that matter. And so uh, we have worked very, very ardently with our customer base to try to help them understand of all the stuff that you might hear about or read about this is the kind of thing you need to concern yourself with. So the Earth's magnetic field protects us in a large part from a lot of the activity, but you're saying at the poles, there's a little more access. And in fact, that's why we see the aurora. That's right. That's right. That's the, really the upside to it is the aurora. And, and, you know, every now and then we get lucky in Boulder and we can see the northern lights. And, and so, so you know if, you're, if you happen to be having a good night and you see them that the system is very energized, that whole polar cap is opened up to try to accept this energy coming off the sun, and, and again, in both hemispheres. And uh, the downside is that if you're trying to do things in high latitudes, again, like communicate or use GPS, in a very serious way um, or other uh, things that have to somehow transit through the, the Earth's atmosphere, through its ionosphere, those types of systems will be affected, adversely and, so. And, and you don't need to be at high latitudes to be concerned about this, um, whether you could an orbiting satellite... Right, can right. Be at risk or or other things. Yeah, and if you that's right. And if you go higher up in the atmosphere, and, and certainly if you do space flight, if you go away from the Earth, it isn't just uh, an effect that that is only at high latitudes, but rather, and you said it, that the shielding that the Earth's magnetic field affords, especially to charged particles, uh, diminishes as you go higher up in altitude. So it's one of those things that again you have to understand the circumstances and try to then, you know, make some contingency plans, if you will, uh, you know, when, when the sun is very eruptive. Life would be very different if the Earth didn't have a strong magnetic field. Um, so what specifically are, is it that damages or causes problems with a spacecraft or with humans out in space? Well, with a spacecraft and, and space flight, it's the radiation issues that can come. And of course, we all know, you know, from a biological point of view, we have to concern ourselves with trying to, you know, minimize the amount of radiation that, that we, we experience. But also, in terms of the systems on board satellites, they can be degraded or actually disabled uh, by an extreme amount of radiation, uh, you know, as well. So for space flight, it becomes primarily a radiation uh, type of avoidance issue. And, and in some cases, there really isn't much you can do about it in real time. So that's why in a forecast, a pre-warning is very important. So on the ground, you said that electrical utilities are also concerned. Is that correct? That's correct. And it's, and it's a totally different pathology. It turns out that when the, the, the sun is eruptive and it disturbs the Earth's magnetic field, a changing magnetic field induces a current. And, uh, and power lines and even pipelines, which are nice long conductors, can actually feel that induced current. And, and for power lines, it's an unwanted effect because it has a detrimental impact on transformers and other hardware. So, if things go badly, the sun is eruptive, causes a magnetic storm, it induces a current in a power grid, and it's unabated, uh, the grid can actually uh, go black. And in, back in 1989, in Quebec, for example, there was a, uh, a blackout that occurred that was directly the result 
of a solar event. So since uh, we don't usually get a space weather forecast on the evening news, is there somewhere someone could go if they're curious about what the forecast is coming up? They can find the the most recent forecast at the uh, Space Weather Prediction Center website. That's SWPC for Space Weather Prediction Center, .NOAA for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, .gov. Well, great. Thanks for coming in and letting us know uh, what to expect in space weather and how it all works. I appreciate you coming in, Joe. You're welcome, Joe. That was Joe Kunches, a space scientist at NOAA's National Weather Service Space Weather Prediction Center. If you want to follow the space weather forecasts, go to the webpage for the Space Weather Prediction Center at www.swpc.noaa.gov. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender and engineered by Jim Pollan. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. And in case you're wondering what those strange sounds were, <laughs> additional music, I should say, from humans snoring and from frogs. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.